Welcome to the Africa podcast. Um, today's conversation is featuring Afif Nsouli and Ahmed Shihabuddin. Both Afif and Ahmed have worked in media for over a decade across TV, print, um, new media. And today's conversation is moderated by me, Mikey Mahenna. It was originally recorded on May 7th over Zoom. Hope you enjoy it. Everyone, thanks so much for joining. I, uh, my name is Mikey Mahenna. I am beyond excited to be joined by Afif Nsouli and Ahmed Shehabuddin on uh, the call. So without further ado, I am beyond excited to be joined by uh, Afif and Ahmed. Afif is a freelance journalist and podcast show creator, uh, previously working as a producer on um, award-winning television shows such as The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and CNN's uh, GPS with Fareed Zakaria. Um, recently, he was won the Google Podcast Creator Program um, Global Competition, which we'll be talking about soon. Ahmed Jahabuddin is an Emmy-nominated journalist, producer, and actor. Um, he served as a senior presenter for AJ+, where he produced an award-winning documentaries focused on social justice and human rights, um, and is, has previously worked at places such as Vice on HBO, The New York Times, The Huffington Post, and PBS. So we are super, super excited to um, talk to you guys. I guess my first question, I'll start out uh, speaking, this is addressed to both of you, but I'm curious, Afif, you started your career in, as a lawyer, um, mm. and uh, Ahmed, you jumped directly straight out of school. You studied communications, you did your uh, graduate school at Columbia going into journalism. But both of you found your way into journalism one way or another. Um, Afif, how about you start off? What drew you away from law into journalism? And Ahmed, what sort of drew you first? Afif, how about you start? So yeah, I was in law school at Emory Law. Um, and I think in the last semester, I got an internship with Fareed Zakaria's team in New York. And I thought, let me do that, because that sounds more more sort of aligned with what I would have been doing in law school anyways, which is really focusing on international uh, law of war. And I had done some work um, with the UN and the Jimmy Carter Foundation. And I just realized as much as law is really interesting, and it is, it's an, an amazing field, obviously, it was the um, it was the human rights aspect of like getting their stories out a lot of times, like whether it was like sort of interrogatories turning into just like um, reports and I just realized I really liked that vibe. So yeah, so I jumped in at CNN uh, as an intern and sort of changed my trajectory and then found myself at The Daily Show and then now doing a podcast with Google and PRX. So it's been just like everyone else's career, you just never know, right? Like you just keep going and seeing what sort of develops over time. Yeah, and it's interesting because like for you, I kind of see you doing journalism as social justice anyway. But how did you know directly early on in your career that, you know, I, journalism is going to be a good way for me to pursue that sort of like social justice angle? I think you just realize there's a very large gap between what you know in your lived experience when you go to the Middle East and what you're reading or seeing on television. And mm. I think for many people who are tapping in to this conversation, you realize that like, there's, there's a gap and you want to be a part of, and you're already a part of it, whether you want to be or not, you're a journalist for your friends in America, you're, you're, you're a journalist for your family back in, in the name, if you're from wherever you're, you know, so you're always sort of being a messenger, whether you want to or not. And I think over time, I sort of, I sort of just like leaned into that power and was like, wow, you know what, I actually have always liked this anyways. And, <laughs> um, you know, like, 
this sounds like something that I've been, yeah. you know, refined to do anyways. Ahmed, is that different for you? Does that resonate with you? Yeah, it's funny hearing uh, Aviv talk about his journey into journalism made me realize that um, even though I always knew I wanted to be a storyteller of some form, and I use that term liberally and hopefully not too pretentiously, because that's really the only consistent sort of behavior in my professional and personal life, professional being schooling when you're young, that was really consistent and felt very authentic. This, um, this, you know, being inspired by people who told stories very well in my childhood and teachers who stood out. Uh, but very quickly, I think it's maybe worth mentioning that, you know, like many young people, I went to, to Boston University to study and I went to the School of Communications, like you mentioned, and I studied advertising at first. So I was taking all these classes in advertising because <laughs> my mom was in advertising and I was like, you know, I'm a kid. I'm going to mirror people I respect. I respect my mother. And long story short, one week, like two or three weeks into the program or maybe a month or two, my professor made me stay after class. And, you know, I, as a kid, I, I kind of craved attention maybe more than most people. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, he wants me to stay after classes. Is it going to be good or bad? Long story short, he pulls me in. He's like, listen, you're very talented. You ask really great questions in class. And I was like, oh, you know, my ego is inflating slowly. <laughs> and then he says, but I have some bad news. And I'm like, what? And he's like, you suck at advertising. Amazing. And, it, you know, it was pretty sobering and rude, but it was a real <laughs> blessing because that day it was very cold. It was like November, Boston. It was the year after 9-11. Oh. My name is Ahmad. I'm living oh. in America for the first time as someone who was born there, but didn't really fully understand the culture because I'd only spent summers there. Long story short, walking home, passed by the Daily Free Press, which was our student newspaper, which is apparently very esteemed in this university newspaper landscape. And I walked in because I saw a sign on the door. I was feeling very dejected. My ego was bruised. I was being forced to question kind of this path that I had arbitrarily chosen of advertising. And um, yeah, that the, ever since then, I just kind of started writing hard news stories, like going to the Boston, you know, speeches by the mayor and all this stuff, reporting on the Boston dig, things I didn't care about. Um, yeah. I wasn't particularly interested in, but... One thing led to another, and I got addicted to, you could say, or I got very, you know, into the, the whole, like, when I saw my first piece published, I was just like, oh, my God, like, I can get paid to do what I do yeah. instinctively. So, yeah, it was, it was a blessing in disguise. So I, I have a question for both of you. And this is, like, comes back to my experience as a teacher. And so I always know, like, how I can, like, what would I, what would I tell my high school students, right? What is it about working on stories that you don't care about that helps you sort of that you're not emotionally invested in that allows you to sort of cut your teeth that like allows you to sharpen sharpen some of the like the basic skills when the emotion isn't there you're like you're working on a story like what are some of the core concepts core skills like the the bounce pass the jump shot the like the core skills that you just need to identify i think sourcing is the the most important mm -hmm. thing honestly like if you are doing a story and you think a thing went away it did and you're starting to write it and and you believe already that it happened the way it happened what you're going to end up doing is having to go back through every sentence and having to prove it you know in some way or another so i think one of the most important things to do is to figure out how you've come to a certain sort of point of view and like sort of interrogate why you think something. And I think that happens throughout your career all the time. Like that happens yeah. in your regular life with your, 
with your, you know, spouse. It's like, it's like, what is it that makes you feel a certain way and look at a certain story <laughs> a certain way? And like, why are you looking at it like that? And then like, try to pull back and think, I really want to see it from my exact opposite. So what I had to do a lot of times at the Daily Show was watch Fox News, which obviously wasn't like refining anything other than me knowing what potentially the other side really believed, right? What their life and truth was. So it's like, that truth is important because you just want to know, you want to know the spectrum of ideas people are coming into a story with so that you can either just understand the facts as they are so that you don't really like take all of that other BS into your, your fact-finding mission. Because that's what this is. It's a, it's a mission to find the truth, whatever the truth is, even if it's small. Yeah, or if it's just one of several truths. I mean, sadly, yeah. I think right. one of the biggest lessons and one of the things, and Afifa and I have actually discussed this in passing in social situations. One of the reasons I think so many of us in the media business are so disillusioned these days is beyond the polarization and you know the confirmation bias phenomenon and the kind of crisis of convic conviction and trust. Um, for me, to answer your question, I mean, I think um, it, context and challenging my own perceptions, uh, especially when you were talking about stories that you otherwise might not have been interested in, or, you know, you might be on a beat early on in your career, um, or even covering a topic that you're not particularly well-versed in, or you, you know, it, I think the most, um, the most kind of like poignant thing for me on a personal level in terms of being a reporter is it's an opportunity to challenge not only your own perceptions, but search for context, which I think is so often what's missing from generating empathy and understanding with the other. And, you know, the media has done such yeah. a great job for so long um, at defining things as mutually exclusive, right? And especially in the U.S., but even around the world and in the Arab world in particular, you know, us versus them, Democrat, yeah. Republican, conservative, liberal, you know, even in controversial issues like in the Middle East, Israel and Palestine, as if there are only two sides, it's David and Goliath, right. you know, the, right. the, the, and it's like this reductive kind of simplistic thing that happens in mainstream coverage. And so I guess for me, I'd say context and being able to challenge your own perceptions and through the process, you know, as you gain, as he's saying, sourcing, you gain facts, you gain insights. Um, for me, the most exciting part is piecing them back together and connecting the dots in a way that is based on how your own perceptions were challenged in order to then hopefully challenge people's perceptions who might consume or read your stories. And, and I think it even goes beyond like in terms of, you know, framing, right? When I talk mm. about context, I think it's like, well, how, I have all these facts that I've reported and I went into this story expecting this. And what I actually learned was this. So invariably, like, uh, you know, especially the older we get and the more d digital technology proliferates, like my career really happened at a time when I think the changing media landscape, as it was often described, which is like such a weird term that doesn't mean anything, but actually is referring to just how rapidly um, storytelling and journalism you know was 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 uh democratizing was shifting and so for me uh it was a real yeah it was a real kind of wake-up call into the power but also the negative power of media so i kind of want to talk about um both of you have been have worked at big stations right mm. both of you have been involved at big tv stations, capital t capital v capital stations what opportunities are associated with working at places with that level of firepower, um, the challenges and sort of 
when the boat is that big, it's hard to turn, but it also can move really fast. It's really powerful. So like mm -hmm. they ha there are really strong forces for change or for like uh, intransience. But like, what what about those those um, what has the, what was your experience? What about working at those big places? Can, can you I can start if, if it's easier yeah, for yeah. doing it that way. Um, I think with with me, I noticed sometimes that like we were talking about nuance. It's like mm -hmm. when you're in a room with people who um, are doing news and news and news every day, and like you know, a story comes across that you feel like you really have a particular viewpoint on that's important. You can sometimes meet a lot of like efficiency issues, right? Like it's like no, we should actually we need to we need to make sure we 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 do this or that. And, and a lot of times at these bigger places that are really really logistical and very very high standard. I mean, obviously there's a high standard for facts, but not always for nuance because nuance is a lot more time. Sometimes with TV, um, there's a specific amount of time that you have to meet. But yeah. I remember when I was in the writer's room with Trevor, I, I think being that close to someone who gets to speak on TV every day, like mm -hmm. he would, he would really listen to my point of view on, on stuff. And that would be very, very powerful in terms of shaping the days sort of speaking about an issue. If it happened to do with something like the Middle East, which I, was you know given that sort of space, I held space on the on the Daily Show to be able to say stuff about the Middle East. Um, of course, it wasn't for every subject, but it was when I felt compelled. I think that there is a power in being in a big place, but I do think that there's a frustration because you will always have to meet a group's idea or point of view or um, a larger brand's sort of POV, and sometimes that can you can really miss the nuance, which for you and for us. Um, can almost be the entire story and, and really frustrate you because you're like, well, no, that's not what it is. Actually, the, that one fact that we're just not having time to mention, it like shifts and colors the whole thing. And you just have to, as a journalist, especially yeah. in big places, well, that, like. And Mikey, I just want to make sure I understood the intention behind the question. You want to know what's good about working at big places? Yeah, well, because I think uh, the challenges and the sort of uh, the opportunities associated with them, because any any big institution can be a huge force for yeah. good or for bad right well i'm i mean this i hate to like say the obvious answers but i think yeah. it's important because i think this is what goes into a lot of the um kind of mental factoring when you're deciding if you have an opportunity to work for a big place whether it's you know cost benefit going to be good for a your career but then the greater yeah. good like are you going to be able to have impact you know, like what is the measure of success is I think ultimately the root of the question you're asking, because for me, many times in my career, I felt compelled to just move up on the ladder for, you know, millions of reasons of like cultural conditioning and ego yeah. and a whole bunch of different things. But I think with big companies, um, resources is what is so uh, valuable and sure. is so rare because, you know, even at Vice, when I was working at Vice at HBO, the amount of money they could spend on each shoot and the budgets and oh if we didn't get the shoot those that will just go back like that's kind of unheard of and that's why we've seen yeah. less and less international reporting which i think in this coronavirus time is very problematic in this collective right. moment there's less of that right and so the big companies for me as someone who was always interested in international news and field reporting and afif can probably attest to this too it's like they have the means to do it on the flip side, if we're going to like point out one thing that's negative and something that I've encountered at a myriad of places, uh, and I say this, you know, with a heavy heart, is, you know, the more powerful and the more money you have and the more resources you have um, and kind of makes you beholden to corporate interests and other interests um, that might not even be so obvious to the, to the consumers of the product or the right. channel, but 
also the producers. Uh, and that's when self-censorship starts to come in. And, you know, that's, you know, censorship for better or worse is one of the reasons I've found myself unable to stay at, at certain companies. And as Afif knows, that's like a losing game because everyone yeah. censors on some level. Yeah. And that's yeah, why I think level. autonomy. Yeah. I think like, I think the one thing you don't have at these bigger places is the autonomy, as Afif mentioned, to explore nuances. I can't tell you how many times, whether at the New York Times or, you know, a whole bunch of places, including HuffPost, like when HuffPost was bought by AOL. Uh, and let's not yeah. forget that media is a business, right? And that's why yeah, we're yeah. seeing this dynamic unfold and trust, you know, being, you know, around the world. But really, yeah. if you look at the US, for example, like only 45% of people say that the media has done a good job. Uh, of handling right. the coronavirus crisis, that's 5% worse than Trump. So 5% of Americans, 5% more Americans think Trump is doing a better that's job a than point. the media, which should tell you yeah. something, right? Because it's like a symbiotic relationship. So for me, um, I think, yeah, it's the big places give you money. I was just going to say, the, only, the thing I can remember a lot of times when I was working at the Daily Show was the, the question the lawyers would pose us, is this is this joke worth X amount of money? Because that's the, yeah, that's yeah. the risk. Exactly. And so we would have to really think about, you know, something that would be really but, funny, but ugh, it would really offend our sponsors. But I feel on the flip side, at the flip side, like at least you can ask that question yeah, to true. The lawyers because right. of how big it is. Yeah, like, right. Exactly what, what you're saying, which is like, if you were just some yeah. YouTuber, you're like, yo, my $27, is that going to like be able to pay my lawyer's fees? No. <laughs> it's like, yeah. absolutely not. So you can't even do it. So you just but get. I would imagine that there's a lots of people um, mm -hmm. at these types of places where that are career career practitioners of whatever they're doing. Editors, producers, yeah. um, grips, For sure. uh, people on set, people who know how to shoot, people know, like, doesn't it offer you some weird apprenticeship training well, program? Sorry, sorry yeah. to jump in, but I will, yeah. because you brought that up, at yeah. Vice... I had one of the best and worst experiences working in media. And for anyone who's read any of the myriad of articles about the culture at Vice, you can assume why that might be the case. Um, but that's really not to take anything away from them because I, I guess what I'm getting at is at Vice, my actual cinematography skills, my sense of directing, which factors into documentary, yeah. even from a production standpoint, I learned things from some of the best people in the business. Same is true at Al Jazeera English, which is a big organization, um, you know, and yeah. it's not even just an apprenticeship. It's more like um, you make very personal connections, especially in field yeah. reporting. When you're in the field, you're in a very compromising yeah. situation. You need to trust each other. So maybe the consumers don't trust the media, but the media, uh, media team has to trust itself. And I learned so much from those companies. On the flip side, in both those companies, there have been instances of censorship that was never explained. And I think that in this day and age, that's very dangerous because so much of what's making people lose faith and trust in institutions like the media, which, you know, is the fourth estate in the States and is important across the world, I think is the fact that people don't, um, people don't trust, um, how can I say it even? I, I, I just feel like... Um, I, at Vice, I was, my Israeli-Palestine documentary was censored in a way that made absolutely no sense to me and there was no explanation offered. And then at Al Jazeera, there were a lot of stories uh, that were LGBT related in the Arab world that, of course, also got right. censored. And it's really self-censorship. Right, yeah. And I'm not complaining. That's just the reality. So I don't know if you could probably relate. Personal relationships are 
like we all know, like yeah. that's what it comes down to. When yeah. you come down to a job, it's like who's around you that's willing to show you a thing mm. that you can learn. Sometimes that's editing. Sometimes that's shooting. That's just like the personality of like your day. Right? Yeah. Like that can just yeah. see how it goes. But I think like at places like the daily show, I learned a lot of creativity and new media in a way that was interesting. Like attacking a subject in a, in a mm -hmm. way that's con for consume, like to consume it in a way that's making you forget whole, like on the, on the whole, that it's really, really hard news mm -hmm. and more. It's just the conventional story that you argument. Yeah, this conventional yeah. way of putting the news. And then at other places like CNN, it's a little harder to learn random things as you go because mm -hmm. you're, you're yeah. producing a show. It's very segmented. You have like your day, your day, you know, your Monday is this way, your Tuesday is this way. Special. And you're all yeah. in different departments. So you're really, really being yeah. trained for the job at hand, whether it's in the control room, whether you're doing the little like, uh, you know, like yeah. the, the script and you're doing this or you're doing something <laughs> huge and you're interviewing someone. It's yeah. just, yeah. you're doing it so fast and big that like you don't have time yeah. to necessarily learn things that are not in that moment. I want to talk a little bit about um, what you guys are doing these days um, in terms of using yourself, your own platforms as an opportunity to tell your stories and the stories of people around you. Um, what are some of the, you know, the stuff that uh, the challenges associated with that, that are, can be juxtaposed to working at these huge organizations. Uh, how about we start with you? Um, yeah, I mean, I was like, what am I doing these days? I'm Zooming, as you can see, um, like everyone else. We're all just Zooming, like my dad. My dad, if yeah. there was a Guinness Book of World Records, my dad would win the number, number of Zoom calls consecutively for days on end. My um, dad loves a voice note, a WhatsApp voice note, so like hundreds of people. He's oh, I wish before. my dad you know loved what I mean? the voice like, note. He's, like, yeah. he's always voice noting random humans. That he Mike is like, why are we doing. talking about dads and dad <laughs> issues? Um, so for me, Mikey, to be honest, I've, I kind of left my job at AJ Plus um, in November in part because I was a bit disillusioned in general with the media business. But beyond that, I was really excited to explore, as I said, my like initial passion, which is telling stories, especially telling stories that um, challenge kind of conventional narratives. And even though I was able to do that throughout my career, and I'm very grateful at certain you know, places, including Al Jazeera, I think uh, you know, it was just a matter of kind of fa facing my own limitations as a result of like my own attachments to like what kind of a reporter I was or the very fact that, okay, I'm a reporter, so I can't do the Trevor Noah thing because Trevor Noah is not a reporter. And, you know, like all this identity-based comparisons. Yeah. When in reality, throughout my career, even at HuffPost, I was always bringing humor into like a world brief program, which was a 30-minute international news bulletin. But I would like find ways to bring humor in it, you know, to be engaging. And I think all this to say that I'm exploring kind of new ways of approaching similar themes uh, that I've always explored as a reporter and kind of more hard news and like kind of conventional um, storytelling as a journalist and doing it like even unfortunately, if anyone follows me on Instagram, then they may have come across some like skits and comedy things that I'm doing or whatever it might be. Some that are funny, some that are definitely not funny. But the point being, <laughs> all touching on all touching on issues. It's it's storytelling, right? And even yeah. if it's not factual based entirely, 
Um, it is in a sense because it's, you know, it's a, it's, these skits are reflections of the human condition, which is, you know, essentially the same thing that a reporter would do. But one thing I'm super excited about is a project that I had pitched to Stanford. I was supposed to go there and do a fellowship there. And the reason I was super excited is it essentially tackles misinformation and intolerance and injustice, which I think has been slowly growing in the U.S. and now in the times of Corona, as we all know, across the world, we're seeing an increase in misinformation. So it was a podcast yeah. that was going to try and explore the behavior mm. dynamics of how we That's generate amazing. empathy. It's kind of my excuse to spend a year not creating content and not being um, obliged or feeling a pressure on myself to create content. Because <laughs> as a thief can yeah. attest, there's, there's all this pressure for all of us to be productive. And in the media business, I think sometimes that drive to publish... Yeah. as is the case with a lot of cable news channels, doesn't always inform or impact. In fact, it just like I would argue diffuses understanding and, 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 yeah. and, and makes it obfuscates what's super important. So I have a question about this actually before you, before you answer, because I think it's related. Um, I have a question if there is, uh, when, when people are, when journalists, specifically journalists, when they're publishing on their own platform, all of a sudden the sort of fact-checking apparatus and infrastructure of these big agencies no longer exists, right? Yeah. Um, how do you guys manage that responsibility, the own moral responsibility you have, but also like the legal liability you guys have when you are telling these stories, right? So as you said, these stories are like storyteller is a really flexible term. Um, right. Yeah. Maybe I think too you're, flexible. Yeah, maybe too flexible. I think you're like you're producing this podcast. Um, oh, I think it's super important to to know your own sort of framing. I think okay, so for me to answer this question, basically, I left the Daily Show in 2018 to go to Beirut do some field reporting, and I linked up with a journalist named Delal Mahawad, and she's an eighth. She's the video editor for Mina. So we're doing a documentary together. That Amazing. was one project that I'm still working on. And then I'm doing a podcast, as you said, with Google. And that's really about like, um, really, that was where that this question comes up is like, to what degree are you policing what people are telling you and, and what you're sharing mm -hmm. as the truth? Because a lot of things can be very complicated. So I went out there to Beirut um, originally to follow these two sister social workers that do de-radicalism in, in a prison called Rumir. And they've been doing it for 10 years. And um, I was going out there with a New York Times journalist. A lot of things went left, like the revolution, blah, blah, blah. It was very hard to get into Rumi with cameras. So um, we actually put it on a lot of them on audio. And that's what ended up happening with this Google podcast creators program. Um, it became uh, a show about 13 female and or queer revolutionaries, doing all sorts of things, right? Like things from, and this is, this is, um, with someone named Reya Shadid. So Dalal Mawad mm. is gonna be one of our characters. We went from, me and Dalal went from working together to doing this podcast. And the thing is, is that when it comes to policing your own, like that, mm. that ethical line of like, what is the truth? You really have to yeah. frame stuff. Sometimes people who are telling you their story really, really, really are telling it from a place <laughs> of like, they don't necessarily bias. even know the truth. Bias. Yeah, they're biased <laughs> to the point where like, they don't even know well, that yeah. they might not have done the thing that they think that they have done. So you have to frame it in saying that this person said this. Like, you're not saying that Correct. this is the truth beyond a certain shadow of a doubt. You're just saying, listen, like, this person said this on this date, and that is what they believe to be true, and that is what I'm trying to posit here. It's like, in this story, this person is living and breathing as if this fact is true, because that's what she told me. And a lot of times, it, it's not about, it's not about the, it, you know, it is about the fact, but it's more like about framing and contextualizing, as Ahmed was saying, is like, 
you have to understand that in their frame of mind. And in law school, we've learned a lot about framing of mind and like, like understanding how people are in, in that moment that they're explaining something to you. And I think that there's a, there's a very high standard that, that if you create something on your own, you have the responsibility to figure out what you're trying to say and if that is the truth, right? And that's really hard. And it's hard to say how to do that other than vigorously I, police yourself. You know? I, I also think, Afif, as you were talking, like because the question before was about like bigger companies and like we're comparing maybe to people who go independent, I think at the end of the day, like it really does come down to transparency and accountability, not just in terms of like your sourcing and, you know, is said person who's quoted or featured, like, who are they? How can I contextualize their experience, their own perceptions? And I think, you know, the more we're able, whether we're working in a team of two on our own with no big budgets or it's a podcast or it's a doc series or it's a whatever it might be, I think the more we're able, like Afif said, to be transparent and accountable in the process, especially in this day and age, when unfortunately um, the kind of, and maybe it's a good thing. I mean, there was always a guise around, you know, these big companies like CNN, the most trusted news, you know, network right. of news, right. Uh, right. Fox, yeah. fair and balanced. There was always an illusion, I think, of sorts um, that, that, you know, all news organizations are always so much based in fact and truth. And at the end of the day, I think, like, not to blow it up and make it existential, but I think one thing we're all learning to a certain Do extent in this, in this coronavirus moment is that truth is not necessarily subjective, like Afif was hinting, but it's definitely based on our perception uh, and our perceptions. I think so much more of journalism is about perceptions as Afif was, you know, I don't know, what did you call it? Uh, frame, what did you call it's it? It's just framing your, like your perspective. It's totally what you're saying. It's like your frame of mind is like, okay, so like in a writer's room of any writer's room of any, like any executive yeah. place where you're choosing the stories to go down, like yeah. you look around and it's like, yeah. okay, like this bomb went off in Pakistan and then Trump tweeted six things today. It's like in yeah. that room, it's like, what are the people valuing yeah. in that room and what are they choosing to cover? And then how are they choosing to cover it, right? Mm-hmm. It's really, really more personal and like emotional well, than I think we've ever framed it before. But it's like, you choose a I, fact and you choose a storyline because you vibe with it. And, like, that's why you're I, trying to say it. Yeah, and I think Mikey, like your question really points to the question of what makes someone or a story or a you know a piece of work in terms of journalistic work credible. But I think there's a myriad of examples, for better or worse, across a vast majority, especially in this coronavirus moment. Like I hate to keep bringing it back, but like it's not intentionally done. But I think we're we're starting to see that. Um, for better or worse, like facts, for as much as they do matter, like they, they only matter in so much as they're framed in a way that is like uh, transparent and accountable yeah. to, to the information you're getting. Yeah, it's like the limits, the limits of truth, right? So yeah. also, you, yeah. the way One you live favorite- the truth is, is super important. People live and feel different emotional yeah. attachments to things, right? Like they've yeah. experienced the same exact thing. They right. just really, really saw it differently though. Like they just feel yeah. it differently. And that's just that. So then One that's of my very favorite to... Dave Chappelle quotes is what he says, um, I don't tell it like it is. I tell it like it feels. Yeah. Like, don't get that's it exactly twisted. That's exactly what it is. I'm not saying the truth. That's not right. <laughs> I'm saying the way it feels. Um, right. You know, as someone who was called mockingly in high school feelings, that was my nickname because I just feel so oh, much. that's so and cute. <laughs> no, it wasn't cute then, but maybe it's cute now. But, um, She's no, getting beat up. On a serious note, like I always was motivated by um, 
feelings. And I feel like uh, so much of journalism, unfortunately, when I went to Colombia, when I was very young, I was super excited to be there and learn the craft and you know, get the degree and all that stuff. But there was, for better or worse, like this, this um, constant reminder that our feel, like a journalist should be you know, the view from nowhere and we should be devoid of feelings. And I think while I understand where that came from, I don't want to deconstruct it. What I'm trying to say is I think there's a lot of humanity and feelings and emotion and empathy that's missing from journalism. And I think that's why trust is so low. And when you see people who are independent, who don't have big organizations behind them, I think part of the reason, for better or worse, um, you know, if, if Trump and if the media can manipulate fear, why can't we manipulate love? Or I know that sounds a bit cheesy, but like something more like understanding or compassion. Um, I, those- I agree. I think it's totally about exposing people to things that other people are feeling on like a real basis. That's like yeah. the point is like, to show them a story yeah. that's important because it's yeah. happening. Like and we all feel fear. Process, Sorry, right. go on. No, I was just going to say, like, I think that the, the divide is like, there's a limit to people's exposure. Like look at how Lebanon uh, like completely reacted to COVID very yeah. much stronger than we could have ever imagined that they would. And I think it's because people had had some experience with crisis before. And so it was like, okay, even though we have no trust in the government at this point, we have no trust in the system. We're still yeah. going to literally do this thing and we're going to like make it go away. Whereas in the United yeah, States, yeah. there is ostensibly more trust in the system, but like, yeah, because there was no exposure to something like this large before, there's a lot of confusion. So it's like in journalism, so remove this, but in journalism, it's like your point is trying to expose people to other parts of the experience that is human, right? Like, and it's like, yeah. if you've never gone through war and you're watching war on your TV, it's like, oh, I how gotta change make, the channel. But, but I can't how do you stand make them it. care and about like, war? Why well, do those articles? You can't, it's very, very hard. Quickly. It's no, so you can, hard. you can. And the sad <laughs> thing is, Afif, you're right, it is tough. But like, why are there so many articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post going back 20 years to Lebanon is a party scene, but then by night, right. this is happening. Why does that exist in Lebanon? And why is Lebanon overreported compared to stuff that happens in Algeria? Because on a cultural level, there's a, there's a endpoint to connect for a lot of people with that scene that's like familiar to them and it like breaks down the barrier and it can make some content about this very complicated sectarian political system very accessible because it's like right. bombs and beer. And- there's an interesting question that maybe might be beyond the scope of this conversation and might be better to have sort of off wax. But like, I do think media has a responsibility for me, uh, media has a responsibility to get people to care about their actual community. Like there's a, like yeah. a little, there's a, speaking of like teaching people to, ha- um, to manipulate love and to ma- manipulate compassion. I think there's um, an, a responsibility for people to actually care about their immediate surroundings mm. and to, before they start nominally and, uh, right having like shallow water of care to I like think far we're all, we're I feel all like, so we're also vulnerable to the same things we don't think we are yeah and i think COVID is showing but, us that like journalism like it, things can happen to all of us right and so like if a war happens far away and you don't think that it matters to you the truth is is like there are so many similarities between very far-flung wars that are very different from one another in some very superficial yeah. ways but when you like really go down the surface like we're human we literally all do and act in ways that can lead to similar outcomes. And journalism really helps you understand things that are the nuances of things to like just learn and understand and how to be and react. Yeah.
But let's start with the Q&A. Um, sure. We'll start with uh, Karen, if you can unmute yourself. So I'm always amazed how articulate you guys are. Um, really impressed with your way you talk about your professions. I guess I'm just wondering if there, if you were to create a uh, journalism venue that would be utopian to you, what it would look like. Me and Ahmed would probably go into like the queerest spots of the Middle East and I don't know, get to know the coolest, art, most artistic parts of the Middle East that people don't know about yet, I guess. That would be really fun. That's just off of the hobby. <laughs> well, when you say utopian, it's like, that's very, I appreciate the question so much, but just that word alone in this particular moment, <laughs> it really took I'm, me. Like, I'm like, whoa, utopia. Like, what is that? One thing I would say is I would love to create a platform like in a utopian kind of state where people share their own stories, um, which, you know, I've tried to do in the past at certain points of my career, but where people share their, first, their, their stories, but that they're not allowed to talk about anything that relates to like the, the things that tend to suck up a lot of the airtime uh, on mainstream platforms and even in mainstream newspapers, including politics and the economy. So purely human-driven stories uh, that are very experiential. Um, and the reason for that is that I think um, beyond the fact that we're losing trust in the media, I think that the role of the media, for better or worse, is evolving. I really respect what Mikey said about like people wanting to know what's happening in their immediate vicinity, in their community, and hyperlocal news is important and should be funded. And part of the program I had applied to at Stanford focuses on that, and that's part of, part of why I was so attracted to it. But very quickly, I would, I would really love to create a mechanism for people to share those stories around similar, like all across the world, around similar shared experiences. Uh, in this moment in particular, we're all living similar collective experiences, logistically, pragmatically, practically, in terms of how we're living our lives. And I would love like a product. Wouldn't it be cool, like, as you were saying, Afif, if like people would just talk about a certain emotion or context or struggle in the context of coronavirus and then have it be first person and have everyone tell their own story. Because for me, that does something that's missing in terms of the approach for a lot of stories, which is to focus on what makes us different, right? The media mm -hmm. loves to focus on, because it's inherent in human nature, I think that which we don't know is intriguing or suspicious and it piques our interest. But what about that which we have in common, especially in this collective moment? I think that could reveal so many innovative ideas and new ways of thinking of the same old tired stories. Oh, I love, I love the idea of like, you know, these stories where you find out suddenly that a community of people in, you know, exactly. underground Beirut are totally just like truly vibing in a similar way than a group in Brooklyn are. And of course, that's an easy comparison to make, but it's just so exciting when that happens because it's not the same, right? It's, it's yeah. just this human spirit that kind of lands in two different ways, but you're just like, oh, they're, they're having fun. Like this is them. But and, 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 and I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is, is, is even something like going to the grocery store. Like it's a mundane right. thing. It doesn't have to do with politics, but it's like we're all affected. We've all shifted in terms of how we fulfill that need. So to see yeah. how someone does it in Beirut, in the south of Beirut, in Taiwan, in a rural right. area of Indonesia, and you know, someone in New York versus London and the things. And I don't know, I just think so much of what's missing in the mainstream coverage of this moment is international news that is both, as Afif said, nuanced, but also 
revealing something new. And I feel like there's so yeah. little of that. The only thing that's revealed that's new in this moment, I feel like here in Kuwait, but also in the US is like statistics and you know, stock markets, Tickers, and oil, yeah. Those, yeah. that stuff's important. <laughs> that stuff's important, but does it generate understanding? No. Yeah, yeah, people don't know why the oil, like why, I know this sounds crazy, but it's like oil, this oil situation is very important, but, but the way that it's covered is not very relatable. So it's hard yeah. to know why. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think one of the, on a personal level, since I love to talk about feelings, is one of the biggest <laughs> realizations for me in the past few months since I came to Kuwait um, is how painfully privileged I am uh, as a human, right? And there's so much of uh, privilege that factors into reporting and oh my God. Uh, the way in which certain stories are told. And I've I've both suffered and benefited from this by virtue of being a man. I have relatives privileged right. in certain situations that can work for me or against me. But then, you know, being Arab and this and like Tennessee and they're like, what, they're coming to take our jobs. And I'm like, the population here is 96% white. Like no one's coming to take yeah. your jobs. And then that becomes the story. But yeah, so Mikey, next question. Yeah, <laughs> let's keep rambling um, thanks, about Karen. racism. So I'm going to both give, give you guys, go, yeah, like, we go left. I'm going to give you like one, uh, one or two minute answer windows. Just so Okay, good. Is there a buzzer? Yeah, you need to police us. Uh, um, do you want to go ahead and answer, ask your question? Yeah, thanks. Um, so you touched upon this, I think, in some ways already, but if you could comment a little bit more directly on mm. how you think your work is helping to potentially get people to think a little bit in more nuanced ways. I think we're moving away from nuance. We have been um, in a dangerous mm -hmm. way for a long, long time. And I see that the work that you're doing is a way to kind of counter that. But I don't know how receptive people are. What, what's sort of your perspective on that? The, the right voice, right? So like the people I've chosen to be on this podcast, uh, it's going to be called Her Stage. It's with Google. And the reason that, that you can really control that in your own work is like, who do you want to speak? So I, I really thought there's a lot of women and a lot of queer people and a lot of people across the spectrum, whatever, doing things in Lebanon that are awesome, whether it's sitting with radicals that are actually like really criminal and getting them to sort of de-radicalize over time using psychotherapy. Like women are doing that. Like people should know women are doing that. That's very important that, that specifically these two sisters are, are doing that or that drag queens exist. And although their parents are Muslim, they accept them. Like there's a lot of things going on in the Middle East that are very relatable, which are love and fun and also bravery and courage that are not so deeply, um, you know, um, so far away from the consciousness of other people in the world. So it's like really getting people to talk that speak really, really well and clearly about a thing and that have a life experience that is not exactly um, uh, foreseeable. Like there's a lot of Arabs that know about de-radicalism. There's a lot of Americans that know we're, you know, about de-radicalism. But the fact that two very strong um, and highly educated women are, you know, doing a lot of the work in, in Lebanon is a big deal. Or the fact that like, you know, just seeing stories from different places, you know, different voices. Um, Badr, do you want to go ahead and ask your question? Hi, guys. Uh, hey, thank Badr. you so much for this. These sessions have been um, lifesavers, to be honest. Thanks, Mikey, yeah. for introducing them, bringing them to our lives. Um, I have uh, maybe a quick question about working with big organizations and how do you remain true to your integrity as a kind of a, a human and your own moral compass? Because everybody has their own agenda, right? All these multi-million, like huge corporations have their own agenda and theme, let's say, but then individually you have very different perspectives and covering 
things. And I came to know both of you by covering stories about the Middle East. And my only um, kind of always had to kind of ask the question is, do these guys live here to be able to tell the story truthfully? Or are they just following the agenda of a much larger corporation? Mm. I, I really do appreciate the question. And... I, it's a question I've asked myself repeatedly at almost every single place I've worked. So just very quickly, I've worked at the New York Times, PBS. Um, I worked at Huffington Post, which was then bought by AOL, then Verizon. I worked at Al Jazeera, which, you know. And one thing I want to tell you about that question is I can't tell you, you know, this cancel culture, and I know that's not what you're referring to specifically, but, you know, it's very easy to dismiss or to undermine a person's uh, right to tell a story based on, oh, you're not from here, you're not black, you can't report on the black community. And even though there's, or you're not Arab, you're not this, you don't understand us. But look, every perspective is valuable. And I think that's why some are more valuable than others to others or to some, you know. And I guess to be specific about it, like very quickly, by on HBO, I was so excited to report and produce the first documentary from a Palestinian youth perspective on HBO. And I felt very important and very tied to that, obviously, because of my own you know, identity as a Palestinian. But beyond that, as a journalist, what was so exciting is this is an amazing opportunity. And then not only did it get censored, um, but it got censored in a way where they just were like, let's take out the settlements. They're crazy. So I've heard that like line come. Um, and I don't know that these companies all have a certain agenda, like this is off limits or this is, and some more than others. But like, for example, at Al Jazeera, as I mentioned earlier, LGBT stories about the Western world or developed world was fine. But about the Arab world, it's not like there was a hard, fast rule. You can't cover those stories, but there were limitations, right? And then that's how self-censorship emerges. And I can say the same about every other place I worked. The New York Times, when I would pitch certain stories, they would like not be excited about what an Arab without terrorism, not into it. So just very quickly, like, uh, and with the, what you hinted or implied in terms of like questioning whether we're, we're credible people to tell stories or what is our agenda. I mean, all I can tell you is that my agenda is to better understand the situation from my point of view and honestly reflect that as transparently as I can. And beyond that, whatever anyone else I think tries to suggest they're trying to do is, is not necessarily very honest because I don't know that someone's perspective, I think parachute journalism is problematic, but on the flip side, I also think that suggesting that someone can't um, have anything to add of value because they ha they're offering a different perspective, I think you have to have humility uh, in those situations that you were implying. And if you have humility and you're accountable, then I'd, I think it's... You got to just trust someone yeah. or not. <laughs> yeah, there's also something to be said about intersectionality and how um, a lot of times True. we're all just intersectional people. And like, for instance, my dad lives in Beirut. And so there's a home there for me. And it's not a home that I grew up going to, um, or it's not a home that I grew up living in, but it's a home I grew up going to. Um, and he finally moved back to it. Um, and so now I feel as though while I'm not exactly local, um, I can definitely yeah. find locals to talk about the thing that they know best, whether it is the LGBTQ community, just speaking for themselves. And I think there is something to be said about intersectional journalists. And, yeah. and like meeting, and meeting people where they're at as well. Listen, I'm in, I've been in rooms where, where, where the room yeah. is 100% white person, um, upper 40 and above male. Um, and like the fact that my, my Muslim background 
queer background is in that room for me is really great now am i going to do everything that represents all of those things every time i speak no i can't i can't be accountable to speak for everyone but i can be accountable to get people to speak on the platform that i'm trying to like break into and i think that's important there's an important thing about producing and having people speak for themselves and if I can quickly just add, I realized as Afif was talking, I think I have an assumption, and it might be a perilous one, where because I've never felt like I belong in any one place by virtue of the way I was brought up, for better or worse, mm. I always <laughs> and often feel like an outsider, even in my own home country, which also, what is home country? Like I was, you know, when I'm in Vienna, I was forced in four years to assimilate there. So it feels like home. I grew up in Egypt for 10 years, but I can't pretend to speak with the insights of an Egyptian who grew up there their whole life. I've lived yeah. in New York for 10 years. Am I a local in New York? You know, so it's to me, I think that's maybe why I feel like, well, it doesn't matter where you're from because I'm always an outsider. So maybe that might. First of all, I'm going to say three things. One, if you guys don't follow these amazing humans, you should. Um, if only to see the memes that Ahmed creates. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, these TikToks all, are lit. Do you guys have any recommendations for the nerds in the room? There's this book I'm reading now that's pretty popular. I think it's well-known. It's called Shantaram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. It's very good. It's like an epic. I love it. Or the, or the way we pronounce it here, Shantaram. 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 <laughs> I, followed, I followed the entire journey of that book. Um, the best. In India, it's fantastic. Ahmed, how about you? When yes. I left my job, I met um, a guy who had written this book called Inward. His name is Young Pueblo on Instagram. I'm sure some of you oh, may yes. have come across him. His real name is Diego. Yeah, he's a meditation instructor. His book is like not maybe what you would think someone would recommend for a nerd, but I am a nerd, I think. And the yeah. book really changed my outlook on kind of the trajectory I was headed on. And I think it might offer the same for some other nerds. So, Well, gentlemen, um, Ahmed, Afif, thank you a million times. Thank you so much for it having us. Thanks for everything. Yeah. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious. Stay curious.